Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, the politics podcast that tries not to mention the B-word, just like Andrea Ledson wishes we wouldn't, from the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, it's a dirty, rough, tough trade we find. Boris Johnson has decided that belligerence is the best option when it comes to EU trade negotiations. International trade expert Dmitry Grotovinsky is here to explain why the Prime Minister may learn otherwise very quickly. Constitutional geekery became a spectator sport during the last Parliament, but now the government wants to give it a Dominic Cummings-style makeover. Kath Haddon of the Institute for Government is here to tell us what that would mean. And which region of Britain is hated by the rest of Britain? You're never going to guess. All that and more, coming up on The Bunker. It's Eddie Days in The Bunker. We went top ten in the Apple podcast chart, number two in news curse you today in focus and apple decided that we were new and noteworthy which is a novel feeling because we're all old do follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod or on facebook facebook.com slash the bunker podcast tell us what we're doing right and wrong and keep up with the show speaking of which listener joe bailey tweeted to say so disappointed by the boomer discussion zero awareness that you're only talking about affluent boomers i'm a gp in a very deprived area my boomer patients left school at 14 or 15 for dead-end jobs they have spent their entire lives in poverty but we were talking about the bad affluent boomers but it is a fair point with that customer services message out of the way let's say hello to our panel jetting in from switzerland it's dimitri grozabinski founder of explaintrade.com where he teaches negotiations and trade policy hence the name and formerly he was one of australia's trade negotiators at the wco he tweets very entertainingly at dimitri opines because let's face it opines is shorter than grozabinski hello dimitri how are you doing i'm very well how are you I'm, I'm not bad thank you very much we had you on romaniacs talking about the b word last year it's fair to say that our trading position has evolved somewhat or devolved, shall we say? Well, honestly, it's gotten better and worse. I mean, the last time I was on your one of your podcasts, I was warning about the abrupt cliff edge. Mm-hmm. And now the UK can at least see the cliff edge coming. I mean, it's shaded by the fog of the channel, but it's, mm-hmm. it's there now. So, you know, you can put on a seatbelt. You can pull on the seatbelt for the cliff edge. Um, even the most attuned person might not be able to explain the exact difference between the May trade position and the Johnson one, apart from knowing where the cliff is. Can you sort up in a nutshell? May wanted the closest alignment with Europe she could sell to the people who believe that Europe is fascist, whereas okay. Boris Johnson wants minimal alignment that he can get away with from the people who would like the UK to still have some viable business models. Right. (laughs) That seems pretty succinct. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Britain's new bolshie attitude to trade later. Were you surprised that Johnson didn't even wait for the Monday after leaving the EU in order to have a go at the, uh, in order to sort of light the fire? Honestly, no. I think this is a administration that feels most comfortable when it's in an all-out brawl knife fight with somebody mm. and is rallying the base around a common enemy and a rule Britannia kind of theme. And there was no reason to believe that they would take a long, deep breath of solitude when there's disruption to be done. They could at least have waited until the Monday, though. They could have given us the Sunday, I would have hoped. <laughs> Sunday is for, for the faithful to rest, not for heathen <laughs> Romanians like us. 
<laughs> also with us is Dr. Kath Haddon, resident historian and history wonk at the Institute for Government, the think tank that tells governments how to govern better. So she's got a work cut out for mm -hmm. her. Hello, Kath. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How thank you for having me. I'm good. So 2019 was your Elvis year, wasn't it? Everybody's talking about the Constitution, mm. procedural questions in pub quizzes, little kids in Erskine May onesies. <laughs> when you were a teenager with your Walter Badgett poster on the wall, did you mm. ever think it would become this talked about it would move to the center of the culture so much well first of all can i just say he's got some excellent sideburns so it's well worth a post or two <laughs> uh but no i, di I didn't get into asking may until at least my 20s uh but you know <laughs> what was the gateway drug what did you start on uh it was standing orders it, no it was watching bbc parliament actually watching bbc parliament yeah. behind the bike sheds at school honestly and bbc parliament on. and obscure sports at the olympics those are <laughs> those are my favorite drug of choice i mean look i think back to 2005 15 and I'm going to mention this uh, you know I love mentioning the Fixed Term Parliaments Act where I was moaning about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act writing very strongly worded blogs and nobody was listening to me and now look where we are so yeah I am like the Cassandra of the Constitution. You're a Constitution hipster actually. <laughs> you should have a t-shirt that says I'm into uh, you know parliamentary clauses that you haven't heard of yet. I, yeah I'm thinking of starting <laughs> a new industry. I do have the a kind of fear though, that we've conducted this kind of public crash course in the workings of Parliament all on the presumption that it, it's around the idea that none of these institutions listen to the people actually they've all worked the way they were supposed to yeah i mean the, the, there's a lot of debate goes on about did the constitution break was it not working actually a lot of the things the way it flex uh the way you know different people had power at, you know various points the, the fact that the majority in parliament were able to do what they wanted to do suggests that a lot of this stuff does work it's just that a lot of it is very opaque to people it's full of some balmy constitutional parliamentary practices uh and it's kind of harder and harder for me to defend why we do things the way that we do oh god and you're like the biggest fan of this stuff yeah i'm not the biggest fan actually there's one or two colleagues at my work right. who are even bigger than me but uh yeah i'm i'm probably up there in the top 10 we're going to dig into this sort of later in the podcast but completing the panel making it three weeks out of three in the bunker which qualifies him for some sort of downfall award I think. <laughs> it's the editor of politics.co.uk ian dunn hello ian how are you doing hello yes terrible fucking terrible as always there we go mm. as usual so it's treat week for you because we've got dimitri to talk trade mm. what products and services will you miss when they're gone by the end of 2020 cars food <laughs> The airplanes. It's just a lot. You think it's all going to get... Chemicals. <laughs> yeah, I love, I'm a huge fan of all of these things. Just matter in general. Matter. Um, <laughs> I've always loved matter since I was a young child. So do you think it was a bad idea trying to ban the B word from the bunker when, when it's just turned up that the government actually wants to ban the B word? So we're basically doing Adrian Ledson's work we're complicit. for Complicit. We're secret agents for Dom. We've, we've been brainwashed <laughs> without even knowing it. But we're not going to do a very good job, right? Because we're basically going to talk about it today. We're going to try not to. Well, we're not, are we? We're going to talk about the trade deal. No, yeah. you see, you we can't talk about the trade deal and not call it Brexit because obviously it is Brexit. And worse, the government wants you to talk about the trade deal and not call it Brexit. So to, to not use the word when that's the thing that you're talking about, it's just it would be it's bad. Australia-style EU exit. Yeah. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get onto that one in a minute. So, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Britain opened its post-B-word trade negotiations in a combative frame of mind. No alignment, no role for the EU on our standards. And without that alignment, Britain is unlikely to get the zero-tariff deal that we've all supposedly taken for granted. So what risks are we running? What do we need to know? What exactly is an Australia-style deal, Dimitri? There's no such thing, is there? What's your take on the current British posture? Lots of kind of waving paper and up yours till all this type of stuff. Yeah, so look, I mean, I guess the dangers first... Uh 
the the first danger is inevitable and that's all of the paperwork that's happening whether you have the best kind of trade deal or the worst kind of trade deal so that's in that's done that's happening but in terms of what happens if you don't get a deal or you get an australia style deal is that the eu applies its tariffs to the uk and the way the eu tariffs work is that they're generally very very low but they are highest in some of the sectors where the eu is the uk's only export destination effectively Mm -hmm. Um, and that's going to hit agricultural communities the ones that produce lamb in scotland and wales for example incredibly hard because those tariffs are so high that you effectively can't get through them no one in the eu is going to buy a uk lamb export if it comes with effectively a 70 percent tax markup um so that that's kind of the danger it's a Um, It's not a generalised danger across the entire economy, but it's very focused on some sectors that, frankly, don't need this in their lives right now. Are there other sectors apart from from agriculture that are particularly vulnerable to this? Because, I mean, the kind of popular idea of us now is that we are basically a services economy and we're really manufacturers or exporters of physical objects so much. The plain fact of the matter is that the free trade agreement is exceedingly unlikely to do much of anything at all on services. Right. So it's not that the services economy is vulnerable to to a bad FTA. It's that they're, they're not going to get the coverage they need regardless. What the EU might do is continue to allow some UK services in, either temporarily or even in the medium to long term. But what they definitely or almost certainly won't do is make commitments in a free trade agreement with the UK to let them in forever or to grant what's called equivalence or passporting in perpetuity. They simply won't do that because it's simply not something countries do in free trade agreements. Can you put a little bit more flesh on the bones of exactly what constitutes services, though? Because we tend to think just, oh, that's financial services. What else? Well, for example, truck drivers, the ability to move things around. Uh, so one one thing that's on the chopping block is the ability of a UK trucking firm to take a truck full of UK goods to the EU and then while it's there, have it move things around inside the EU, either within one EU country or between EU countries. Often that's the way that you can be more competitive as a trucking firm. You make one run from the UK to the EU and then you do some others. That is a services export. Um, and that's not financial services. So most people thought lorries aren't services. The truck driver and his mate. That's it, and that's a huge. That's a in this whole process. That's pretty much the first time I've heard it made clear that logistics are services as well as shifting money around. Um, that's probably something you should talk to the Remain campaign uh, yeah. four years ago about. <laughs> you can't tell, but I'm shrugging it like <laughs> despair and forlornness. We'll just put a swanny whistle on the soundtrack there to uh, indicate you shrugging. This business of Australia-style deal, that's kind of weasel words, isn't it? Because an Australia-style deal isn't a deal at all. It's the absence of a deal. Is that right? Pretty much. Australia has two agreements with uh, the EU that are trade relevant. They're about wine and some mutual recognition in a couple of uh, kind of product areas, but they don't have a trade agreement that would lower tariffs, which is the whole goal of what the UK is trying to negotiate with the EU. The Australia is trying to get one precisely because the current access they have to the EU isn't good enough. Um, also, I mean, an Australia-style deal comes with a boomerang and is on fire. <laughs> Sounds good. Does it, but, it comes, but it comes back to you. You're allowed to say that. Yeah, you, you, don't, say. you don't want a thing that's on fire coming back to you, though. 
You're like, why isn't this a spear? I could get rid of all this fire. <laughs> I think you were tweeting last week that even Australia doesn't trade with the EU on Australia-like terms. Yeah, I mean, that was a slightly glib way to put it, but basically Australia enjoys slightly better access in agriculture than other developed countries because for historical reasons that date back to the 70s, uh, the EU provides Australia quotas, country-specific quotas of certain agricultural products mm. um, that are lower or zero tariff up to a certain tonnage per year. It's not a huge amount, but it's something like 19,000 tons of lamb, which makes a difference. 19,000 tons of lamb, that's a lot. Well, to eat in one sitting. It is. It's a, it's a lot of kebabs. Um, Ian, I mean, this is this has been the kind of ping pong that's gone back and forth since the beginning of the whole B word process. What do you take away from the government deciding it's going to come out with a, a you know the high concept on it on the, their entire approach is we're not going to we're not going to align with Europe. We're not going to listen to Europe. We're going to be belligerent. Is this entirely for home consumption? I think it was at the beginning. Now I'm starting to... It's very difficult with this government because um, from the moment that Boris Johnson entered Downing Street, it was very hard to discern what the objective truth was about anything that was happening. Mm. As he would say, one thing one day, one another day, Dominic Cummings would be saying something different to what was being said by the Prime Minister at another time. So do you remember when he got the deal, when, in the weeks leading up to when he went for that walk with Varadkar and they're like, you know, actually, maybe we can do a deal. Mm. At that point pretty much 80% of commentators were like, we're going for no deal. Because all of the messaging coming from Downing Street, it's not like it was, you know, people calculating it independently, was going in the other direction. And that, of course, is, is, a, is a strategy, you know, basically to keep you on your toes. So at this point, you have to think, well, do they really mean it when they say this stuff? And I'm sort of getting to the point now where I think, yeah, they probably do. Like, you look at Gove's what Gove was doing overnight, talking not so much about admitting what would happen to our exports when we send them over, but what would happen to EU imports coming over to us as if we're going to do the full set of checks. So just to clarify, after four years of saying there's not going, there's going to be frictionless trade, there's not going to be any borders. That's all gone now. That's all gone as of yesterday. Yes, there's going to be friction. Yeah. Yes, it's mm. going to be difficult and uh, business should have prepared. And this is sort of that, that post-truth culture, how it operates, right? That if you talk to people, it's people don't even seem to remember that for years that was what was being said. For years, people were talking about frictionless trade and the exact same benefits and blah, 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 blah. And now suddenly, day after day, it just sort of switches. And no one really seems to be properly acknowledging the fact that there's been a complete system overhaul in the kind of message that the government is putting out. But up. Ian, there's all, Oceania has always had a customs border. <laughs> you don't remember that. Look, I, I mean, the thing is, if you go back uh, even to Theresa May's government, there were points at which you had leavers and remainers in the cabinet who wanted to deal with fear in different ways. For a period of time, you know, the leavers were actually the ones that wanted to say, you know, these are the things that could happen. They wanted to warn. And then it was like, no, 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 let's not have project fear. Uh, let's make sure that all the messaging about what's going to happen with Brexit is really positive. And they seem to be back to let's get it out the way now so that we're sort of shocking people now and we've got a bit of time to reassure them that everything's going to be okay. Um, but it's always this backwards and forwards between how much do you scare people and how much mm. do you kind of try and reassure them. So I suspect through the whole of the year we're going to see different moments where they come out and say different things. But the other thing is I love the double act of Boris Johnson and uh, Michael Gove. There's this great bit in Parks and Recreation where it's uh, Chris and Ben and Chris is the sort of good news guy mm -hmm. who comes in and says, you're all fantastic. <laughs> and then Ben comes in and says, you're all fired. <laughs> and it's kind of like that with Boris Johnson says, no, there's going to be no checks whatsoever. Michael Gove, there'll be a few checks. <laughs> well, there doesn't seem to be any penalty at all for 
fully contradicting yourself in a period of just a few weeks. Well, politicians have always been the masters of saying, you know, that was true when I said it before, but it's changed now. And so this is what I'm saying now. Mm. Uh, And that was probably the line that they'll give is that, you know, for a period of time, there weren't going to be any checks because we had decided there weren't going to be any checks. And now we appreciate there's going to be some checks. And now we're telling you that there are going to be some checks. So in their minds, it's all about messaging. It's not Mm. really a question of like, whether you were sort of, you know, objectively right before or now. Oh, and also, by the way, look, a bridge. Yeah. Oh, I did love the, yeah, throwing in a bridge across from sort of Northern Ireland to Scotland as a way of distracting from the fact that they were pointing out there's going to be friction at the border. Great um, stuff. Yeah. We're operating a ban on, on the bridge. The bridge is bullshit. We're keeping the bridge out of the whole thing. Yeah, um, I mean, you'll, you'll you be, just mentioned the bridge and yeah, several <laughs> times. But it's like, you know, when, when people say to you, don't think of an elephant. Try not to think of an elephant. Immediately, <laughs> elephant in your head. There's an elephant in your head. Don't think of the munitions dump. The elephant is like stomping Slightly. on blindly because there are no maps. Yeah. I mean, Blow you're all going to be laughing when there is a bridge and you're driving over it and it's the greatest achievement that, you know, the country has it's ever true. done. It's true. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is the exact <laughs> point that I'll be like, fine, I was wrong. Yeah. He's, he's an engineering in genius and bridge. I was wrong yeah. to doubt Ian him. immediately yeah. begins writing how to be a Tory. <laughs> So, Dimitri, if the government gets to where it says it wants, what industries do we think will prosper and which will suffer? Because you just described how it's not going to look great for, um, you know, for Welsh lamb. Well, trade consultants are going to have a great day. Um, Apart from you, yes. Oh, um, it's really hard to think about other people. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's not going to be great. Um, so the kind of the industries that are likely to continue doing well are those that are very focused on the UK market. Mm. So if you're currently selling haircuts to people on Main Street, the demand for shorter hair is not likely to to, to shrink. So internally focused businesses, pubs, restaurants, tourism, I don't think will take a lasting hit. I know there's kind of an anti-foreigner sort of sentiment that's stronger than perhaps pe- people are telling this to me. Um, my partner's a, a person of colour and that's what they tell me they experience yeah. now and they grew up in the UK. Um, so so there, there might be a little, but ultimately I think that that'll be just fine. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to financial and professional services. It's certainly not going to collapse overnight and it will. the city will continue to be the city. But there's a big open question about how much of professional services and, and these kind of things um, existed because of passporting into Europe, how much was London being used as a beachhead into the EU, and to what extent will that no longer be possible? Where are you betting on it, it settling down? What do you think that the solution will will shake out at from the government's current strategy on this? Okay, keep in mind I have never successfully predicted anything. Um, and in my mind, Hillary Clinton's like still president. So uh, <laughs> I, my record's not great, but My guess of where this goes is that when push comes to shove, Boris Johnson uses a combination of the fact that, as we discussed, truth no longer matters. Secondly, that all of the places where he has laid out red lines are super complex and thus fungible Mm -hmm. to make a series of concessions where the EU needs them, perhaps not quite as much as the EU's asking for at the moment, but enough to secure a good chunk of access into the EU or perhaps even duty-free, and then basically just turns it around to the country and says he didn't. Yeah. 
So basically, true to form, as with, for instance, the border in the Irish Sea. Yeah, I mean, not, only, not am I not going to do it, but I haven't done it. You clearly have. Yeah, I mean, he, they they are still saying there is not going to be checks uh, in on trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. There absolutely is. Mm. I mean, even if the UK doesn't have any, the, the EU absolutely will. But he gets in front of a camera and says there isn't, and then they cut to some weird nerd like me reading aloud from paragraph sub 46 B and everybody and and everybody just goes well that was boring I'm sure the Prime Minister's right you're not boring Dimitri you're interesting if our if our listeners want to sound interesting in the pub over the weekend so the thing with trade is yeah if they're in a should pub they be dropping? <laughs> Pivot to literally anything else. <laughs> Take it from my dating life in my 20s. No conversation that begins with the thing about trade gets you a phone number at the end of the night. Okay, time to rescue Kath Haddon from her medically induced coma. <laughs> they say they'll change the constitution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. After the upheavals of the past couple of years, government outriders are muttering darkly about meddling with the very substance of the state itself. The government has promised to overhaul the Lords and there's talk of changing or maybe even abolishing the Supreme Court and possibly even bringing in that populist favourite, elected judges, because who wouldn't want to be up on a charge in front of Toby Young or Julia Hartley Brewer? Kath, <laughs> what reforms has the government been open about? What's it committed to so far? Uh, it has committed to abolishing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Oh, Mention no. it again. No, but that's about it. Look, we were talking during the election about page 48. It's actually page 47 a little bit and page 48, if you're going to be pedantic, as I am, um, of the manifesto, where they talk about a range of stuff mm -hmm. that they're going to do. But there's all sorts that are thrown in. There's a massive bucket long list of things that they're going to do. There's a few things they're not going to do. They say they're committed to the first past the post system. So electoral reform. That's the only one anybody wants to change. I'm sorry, but that is off the agenda. It did very well for them. They're keeping yeah. it. <laughs> um, they talk about House of Lords reform. They talk about judicial review being, uh, you know, something they want to look at. They mention the House of Lords, whether or not they actually get round to that. Governments keep saying that they want to do that. Uh, and yet they talk about the Supreme Court and sort of the, you know, balance between sort of access to justice for ordinary people and the effects of justice on uh, government as well. So before we get into what's likely to happen, from an objective point of view because mm. the Institute for Government is an objective organisation. Mm -hmm. What bits of the Constitution don't work and do need a lick of paint and some hammerite? I mean, to be honest, the biggest thing for me over the last year has been some public awareness about it and actually generally agreement about the sort of, you know, constitutional settlement that we have, whether it's the union more generally, whether or not it's people's understanding of it, the way it works in, you know, in terms of uh, politics and our parliamentary system. So it's kind of the whole thing really about whether mm. or not actually, it's not so much whether it works in terms of getting you through sort of the day job of government governing, because it, it's managed all right on that, because it's, you you know, massively flexible. Um, but it's whether or not it's actually what people want. And there is a lot of frustration uh, about whether it gives them the kind of rights and access that they want to sort of, or the, the ability to push back. And the other big question is the Queen, dare I say it. Mm. 
I mean, the prorogation crisis, that did call into the question, what role can the Queen play in terms of refusing a Prime Minister when he makes a request that is in her gift to you know, give? And it's very difficult for her to refuse because it would politicise her. But at the same time, if she doesn't, then it gives Prime Ministers a sort of opportunity to sort of do whatever they want. So prorogation was all about can the Queen actually push back uh, if something is a sort of outrageous request. And we didn't see that because if, if there had been a request to prorogue over the period that we would have been leaving with no deal, that would have caused a constitutional crisis. As a betting woman... I'm wh- not. If you were a betting woman, yeah. where do you think would be receive- receiving attention first from this government in particular? Um, I think they're going to want to do something that looks at the relationship between law, the judiciary and parliament because uh, prorogation but many other issues beyond that are, are the thing that they're concerned about. Whether or not judicial reviews got had a sort of you know greater encroachment on policy making, whether it means that these unelected judges as we call them um, No, we don't call them, they call them. I, you didn't get the memo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, whether or not the judges are encroaching more and more into areas of politics that uh, certainly this Conservative government feels that should be off limits Um, because we have this settlement in our country where uh, Parliament is sovereign and the courts are not supposed to get into areas like primary legislation. If, you know, Parliament has said this is the law, um, then it's not for the uh, courts to then say, no, that isn't the law. What they do is question whether or not the interpretation of the Mm. law is correct. Uh, so, but there's this feeling that actually they've got more and more into that, and the prorogation case was the most high-profile version of that. But I don't think they're going to do that in a hurry. Um, because of what we've been talking about, you know, I can't mention the B word, so the future relationship, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, that and also COP uh, and climate change, big conference coming up later in the year. Those are going to be massive things for the government to deal with. And actually deciding to have a big review of the system alongside all of that, um, you know, might not be their sort of top priority, which is why they might kick it into a commission that takes like a year, year and a half to look in, look at it all. In the meantime, they want to change the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. But again, there's no urgency on that because the next election isn't until 2024. So you've got some years before you actually need to repeal and change that. So I don't think they're going to do anything in a hurry. And also because they like the threat. You know, yeah. being able to turn around to the House of Lords and say, we'll reform you, we'll abolish you, we'll move you to York. Nice House of Lords, you got this, shame if somebody reformed yeah. <laughs> it's a, you know, It's good to have these things kind of in your back pocket. Once yeah. you actually start committing to it, then you've got the big headache of actually doing it. So is the Supreme Court going to be the new European Court of Human Rights, any permanent enemy? Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of new permanent enemies. They're going to be the House of Lords. It's going to be, you know, once the new Labour leadership gets up and running, you know, there'll be another bogeyman for the government. It will be the courts. Uh, it might be Ian Dunn. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, you know, there's, it, and also the media, you know, the media, BBC, they, they've all mm. got a sort of quite a lot of flack. But that, again, is not something entirely new for governments. Yeah. You know, governments have been using the EU and other sort of supranational organisations as sort of bogey man for a number of years. But back to the Supreme Court, I mean, it hasn't been there all that long. It's a 20 years, maybe? No, 2009 it started up and running, so yeah. Not even that long? No, not that long at all. And it would be a shame if it went over after one altercation with the government. Yeah, I mean, like I say, there's some stuff that's kind of where they've encroached more and more. There are parts of this Conservative Party who just feel fundamentally that the judiciary has got too divorced from politics and that you actually need uh, a sort of political perspective um, at the top when it's come down to deciding some of these things. And that 
sitting in the House of Lords meant that, you know, political decisions were primary, um, that ultimately it was for Parliament to sort of decide. And that's that's why we're having this debate. Whether they put it back, I don't know. I mean, the reason Tony Blair wanted it to move in the first place was to kind of give it a greater legitimacy because it was seen as anachronistic for, you know, the Lord Lords to be sitting there in their ermine um, making judgments and so forth. So it would be seen as a slightly retrograde, you know, modernising mm. move to actually move it back there. They might just rename it. You know, they're quite the good Suprema, at renaming stuff. The Suprema Court. I think, yeah. was it the Onion that said that the Supreme Court was going to have a new Suprema Court above it? Trump the, was going to bring one in. <laughs> you know, any any names, you know, on the back of an envelope, send them in to the Ministry of Justice. You know, you could you could be the ones to name the new Supreme Court. I should be taking this one to the Supremest Court. Yeah. Ian, does this, you know, boil this down for us in your usual cynical way, is this just an executive power grab? It's a combination of two things. First of all, it is, of course, an executive power grab by people who think that there is a sort of triumph of the will to be had through strong government. But that has been linked to this idea of we represent the people that has been present throughout the Brexit debate and certainly is the same thing that we see in in America. And in that sense, I mean, you see, I've got to say, the more and more I see... um, Don Cummins behave, the more he does seem like Steve Bannon, who used to have exactly the same attitude towards these things, or even Miller, who would advise Trump on immigration. Constantly, whenever they see a court judgment go against them, or whenever they get internal briefings from the State Department or from um, Homeland Security that would say, look, if you you can ban travel from this country, but that's going to seriously hinder our counterterrorism efforts with them. Or you can deport 80,000 Hondurans if you like, but that's actually going to destabilise Honduras and mean that there's more Hondurans that are eventually coming over to your border. All of this stuff, the civil service, the judiciary, doing what it is supposed to be doing of saying, well, we're going to scrutinise what government does, is treated as the deep state. It's basically treated as, you know, this kind of conspiracy from the elite class that tries to get in your way. So, yes, it's an executive power grab. We always saw that. What the difference is now is that it's being done by people who have a genuine belief in this idea that they are the representatives of the people and the people have only one voice, this kind of mob assessment of what politics entails. So it's more dangerous than it has been in years gone by. I'm just going to put a counterpoint, mm-hmm. uh, just because, you know, I'm fully impartial and all the no, rest of it. I but welcome scrutiny. No, but it's actually, it's, <laughs> it's actually a really interesting question. There's two different perspectives. One is that in any, you know... democratic system you need to have checks and balances so we always look to the US where there's strict separation between legislature executive and the courts Um, and here we have a slight we have a separation between the courts and the legislature executive but we have an executive formed out of the legislature some people want those checks in the system and believe that actually that is the thing that you know makes democracy safe from you know too powerful executive or anything like that Um, But there is another view, which is the one that a number of conservative politicians have, which is that actually Parliament is sovereign and our system works because the executive is drawn from the legislature and that the ultimate check on power is the ballot box. So their view is that you're electing a government and it is not okay for other bits of the system, the courts, the lords, to undermine those sort of manifesto commitments. So... Yeah, okay, it's power from the people, but it does come from a place which is about what's your concept of democracy and what is the ultimate check on power, and that's their view. And that's always been the Conservative view, I think, really. Well, with some wobbles in the sort of post-war period, 
But actually, most of the history of these institutions was to say, well, actually, there is a danger when we get great upheavals within the populace. Mm. One of the things we do is put these kind of resistance pads within the way that the democratic will is formed from the people up into the government. And to be honest, a liberal democratic system, in most cases, I mean, you look at the US, you look at France, but also including British tradition, mm -hmm. has usually has that in it. And that's one of the core components that stops it from wheeling out of control. But the problem is some of these checks in the system are actually based on behaviour. So really good one we talk about the prime minister versus the cabinet you know prime minister is only there as long as his cabinet keeps him in place at the same time he's got the power to hire and fire them it's a kind of natural balancing act but it's entirely based on personalities politics kind of position in the party is a cabinet going to stand up to them are you going to have you know claire short robin cook resigning over the iraq war and is that going to make a difference you know resignations over brexit did that make a difference to theresa may's policy those are uh, sort of political checkers the system but the question is does that work is it enough i think it's also really interesting how the concept of a mandate from a popular vote whether it's an election mm. or a referendum can be used um, in the sense that if you if you are elected even with a massive majority is can you then claim to have a mandate from the people for literally anything you mm. can conceive? Mm. Uh, do you have a mandate merely for what was in your, say, manifesto or, you know, the, the blood document or whatever the Labour Party has? Um, you know, or is it, do you have, is it a mandate only for the things that, say, opinion polls say mm. voters were most concerned about? I think something we saw a lot through the B-word debate was like this sense that 75 years from now decisions of which pothole to repair in mm -hmm. Yorkshire will be justified by one side as saying well the people voted. I did want to ask you though Kath, because you're here. Keir Starmer is talking about a federal UK, mm -hmm. the FUK as we're calling it. Is that kind of, it's kind of not in the culture of the country but is it kind of you know to get there from here is an undertaking as massive or you know, yeah. e equal as Brexit. Yeah, and you've got two major problems, both of which come, uh, you know, relate to the stuff we've been talking about. One is the UK is not equal in terms of its constituent parts. You would have a very unequal weighting towards mm. England unless you had, you know, different kind of regions. You divided up in a different way. Uh, so that, you know, begs lots of questions about how do you balance power? Uh, you know, how do you balance money? We're all talking about levelling up, which is the new version of sort of regional um, economic policy because, again, you've got to rebrand it. Um, but all of those factors are going to pay a part of it. But there's another big one, which is about parliamentary sovereignty. So we've been talking about that today uh, is ultimately the decider on all of this the Westminster Parliament and if it is then everything else that you do at a sort of federal level you're not really giving people rights and responsibilities if ultimately Parliament is sovereign and can take away any of that any other time because otherwise it's like what's the check of how this federal system works. Do we all collectively come to a decision? Do, you know, different parliaments work together? Does a, a new second chamber, does that sort of supersede the commons? Or how does it work in that respect? So there's a, a deep question about parliamentary sovereignty that will relate to all of this as well. Finally, bad news for Metropolitan Stay-at-Home, Ian Dunt. Everybody hates London, and that's now official. <laughs> 
As established by research from the Times' Red Box political newsletter, the paper looked at the attitudes of every region in the country towards every other region in the country and towards itself. They asked nearly 5,000 people whether they felt positively or negatively towards different parts of the country. London was the only region to register a clear net negative rating. From the north of England, Scotland, Wales, Yorkshire and the West Midlands, with the North East disliking London the most. This is a massive surprise considering the capital is full of Scots, Mancunians, the Welsh, Brummies, Scousers and sundry other escapees. Actually, one other region did get a negative rating. The South East got 1% negative from Scotland. That kind of mm. figures. Mm. Uh, other key points were Yorkshire and the North West are most favourably thought of areas across the country. That'll be the accent. Um, Tory voters are more positive about the North and Labour voters which is kind of odd. Uh, of course, not Labour is, the North is full of Tory voters now, isn't it? So that kind of makes a bit more sense. <laughs> and there was quite an interesting breakdown of satisfaction with your own area by gender and leave or remain. The most dissatisfied people with home are the leavers of London. They're the most miserable. <laughs> and the most, Hardly surprised. And, uh, yeah, and the most satisfied are Scots remainers. Uh, so, and, and the miserable. Hardly surprised. There you yeah. go. So is this a picture of a nation at ease with itself, we asked ourselves, and can we get through this without the B word? Ian Dunce, hmm. uh, you want to saw London off from the rest of the UK <laughs> this and fucking, dock it with France. And also, I'm going to Liverpool with you this weekend. Yeah. You can't keep up this shit. They know it, they know it. They've got, they got the rotten cabbages ready already. <laughs> I mean, is it that surprising that the rest of the UK take, takes a dim view of London? Well, no, we know this, right? I remember I remember looking at some focus group stuff in 2016 before the referendum and lots of people, they'll come up with different economic proposals and show them different groups around the country and they were like, well, look, in this case, like you would get hurt locally, mm. but Lon- London would get hurt worse. And they were like, yeah. oh, fucking take it. Yeah. <laughs> Just as long as London got hurt, they was basically feeling all right. And I think this, like, it's easy, to, uh, the instinctive Londoner in you just wants, th- there is this sort of, you know, the thing just like, okay, well, I'm fucking kind of sick and tired of people slacking off somewhere that I love. And you're allowed to love where you're from when you're a Londoner, just the same as you are when yep. you're from someone outside. And so there's a lot of instinctive feeling of, um, well, is it just that they're basically a bunch of races? You know, they come to London, it's lots of different races. And, they're, and I don't think it is that, although I think there is some sort of suspicion of multiculturalism and, and the sort of, you know, oh, you hear all these different languages and blah, blah, blah. A lot of it comes from a genuine economic place of a feeling of lopsidedness in the country, which is simply the correct opinion about the way that this country is organised economically mm-hmm. and that needs to change. And then there's a third part, which is the part that we don't really talk about, which is, I think is this kind of psychological, emotional thing that happens to people when they come up to London, which is sort of, <laughs> I think it's kind of existential. I think something happens when you go into a big, big city. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, it's not really like, not like Barcelona sort of levels or even Rome, but like when you get into sort of like New York, London levels, I think something happens that for people that aren't from a place like that, they just sort of look at it and think, oh, fuck, maybe I don't matter. Like the mm-hmm. scale of the human life that is going on and the anonymity of it. I think kind of has an effect on, on a lot of people. And that third part, that psychological part, we don't really talk about. We talk about the first two. But I think a lot of this stuff comes from people's experiences when they went for a weekend in London on the train and came back feeling a bit funny about it. Well, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, a man can lose himself in London, as they say. But it, the, I remember the storm of 1987, I mean, the mm. big storm. And I was in Leeds at the time and everybody loved it because London had got flattened <laughs> and all my family loved it and were laughing 
and all of my mates in Leeds are like that's uh, one in the eye for them see, uh-huh. how, see how you like it you know as if we in the north of England just had hurricanes every day and our houses were blown down every day now it's your turn there is I, I do think it's kind of a feud with like an imaginary London mm. a London that kind of is you know a land of top hats and kind of uh, but you, I mean you see that all over the country anyway I mean we're in Six Nations rugby territory at the moment and everyone loves to have their you know who they hate the most who they'll support if they're playing England all that kind of stuff I think there is something about people coming to London but for me I mean you always hear the lines of you know people coming in being on the tube no one looks at each other on the tube no one talks mm-hmm. to each other no one smiles my response to that is you try doing these journeys every day and you will stop smiling after a period of time but I also kind of understand it, like, you know, the frustration with London. There's also a flight from the towns kind of or flight from the countryside kind of attitude about this, of people mm. who go down to London. So I don't think actually it's like genuine Londoners who necessarily people are frustrated with. It's probably all of the people that have sort of moved there to the big city and then come home and are really annoying about how good the gigs are or something like that, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is completely false also can yeah. i just say that my favorite thing about this survey was i think it said something like uh, you know liberal democrat voters are generally more positive about well, everywhere everything. yeah <laughs> yeah, that's that's so sweet. yeah. God, oh, love them. Love they just like everybody well, i mean it's <laughs> the, the 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 real london that we live in is actually is is, is full of people from everywhere else mm. in fact i think i know more people from everywhere else than actually from london and it's it's not you know, it's not a, a kind of objection to the reality of the place or the reality of the people. Well, it's a reaction, seems to be a reaction to the status. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, like anywhere, London is full of complexities. I mean, we might be talking about the sort of gentrified London, the hipsters, the avocado on toast, all that kind of stuff. But actually, London is full of like huge wealth inequalities. And I doubt if people are as frustrated with those parts of London they see as sort of, you know, genuine and similar to them and, uh, you know, struggling in the same way as other parts of the UK are. They probably just hate posh you know, liberal, hipster London. Do you think they even see that? Do you think they're even aware of it? Because I think for most people, when they talk about London, I mean, it's quite rare that they go into those parts of London. They usually go to, you know, Theatreland or whatever, Mm. and you have a meal in the West End and, and off you go. And I think... You, you're right in that in that thing you said of saying that it's not really the reality of London. It's basically London as an idea, and mm. London as an idea, as portrayed over the last few years, you know, but essentially by the press, basically just like it's the cultural elite, it's an international elite, it's mm. a booming economic success story, it's where all the people are from on the telly that you know get to tour down. And so I, I'm not sure that when people say London, they can even picture the kind of areas mm. that, as a Londoner, you know exist and you will invariably have been to. Well, and also part of it is, again, the lopsided political uh, balance in the country as well. People hating the UK government and being frustrated with what they do and they don't understand local politics. They don't you know, care about us, all that kind of frustration. Or if you're from any of the devolved governments, just frustration generally with it. And that becomes also another proxy for London. I think there's also, you can't look past the economic side of it. Mm -hmm. Mm. As manufacturing has declined across the UK, the counterbalance has been the rise of professional and financial services, which are associated with exactly the kind of person that that Ian and Kath, you guys have been describing, Mm. which the the country pictures perhaps when they channel that loathing into, into the city. And there's this sense of, yes, there's inequality and yes, but that inequality is personified in the quintessential London that's mm. doing well and not necessarily in 
all of the people in London who don't happen to work for a venture capitalist firm, which is <laughs> most of London. Um, you know, like the city doesn't employ that many people, but it's, it's seen as that's, that's who runs the country, for better or worse. On the upside, London's own attitude to everywhere else is, is pretty positive. Mm. Uh, it's because we love leaving London. Well, it's, it's, it's because Speak for yourself. It's because, <laughs> it's because your nan and granddad are there, I think. It's outside of the southeast. Its favourite region is Scotland, 54% positive, and Wales, 48%. That'll be the holiday uh-huh. homes. Um, and even 35% positive towards the northwest. That'll be the Manchester United fans. London only has a 15% positive like factor towards the West Midlands, though. Are the areas most pleased with themselves are the southwest and the northwest, and famously self-effacing Yorkshire. So mm-hmm. basically, by and large, everybody's relatively happy, but, except yeah. with ima- imaginary <laughs> London. Imaginary I mean, fake no, London. no, no, no. Because I, I mean, come on. If you broke this down, I mean, Cornwall hates Devon, uh, and probably vice versa. Oh, right. So you know, th- there's a lot of rivalry goes on there. And the same when you you know talk about Lancashire, Yorkshire, or anything like that. People love to oh, Leeds you know, and the rivalry. Uh, yeah, Southampton, yeah, Portsmouth. I remember that's all anyone ever talked about when I lived yeah. down. Norwich and Ipswich. That's my you yeah. know, home counties, mm. yeah, I, I can't massive be, rivalry. I can't be doing with the end of our road. And on that show of positivity, we've come to the end of the show, which means we're running for the emergency exit from the bunker. Politics is a bit of a pressure cooker. So every week we ask the panel for their escape routes from the wonderful and frightening world of politics. What music, books, films, events or miscellaneous will be taking their minds off the cabinet reshuffle and or the coronavirus? Dmitry Grozdobinsky, what's your escape route from all this stuff at the minute? Well, surprise absolutely no one who follows me on Twitter that being on podcasts like this is just me rehearsing for finally getting onto a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. <laughs> if anybody out there is listening, I can't, I can't tell you how much I would rather right now be playing Dungeons and Dragons than talking about freight forwarders. So, uh, I mean, I, on the way here, I was listening to Dungeons. Andrew sent me a script for this. I didn't read it. I was busy designing like an elf archer. So okay. that is my escape. And I would like to escape more, please. If you are out there. What's your uh, what's your key identifier there? Are you like sort of chaotic mage or something? I actually tend to, to Dungeon Master, so I tell the story because I am both a oh, control wow. freak mm-hmm. and I love to tell my friends stories and entertain my friends. And also I feel like I would frustrate everyone in the room with me if I had agency. <laughs> Back once again with the Renegade Dungeon Master. Kath Haddon, what's your escape route? Uh, box sets, and I will demolish them. There was a point a couple of years ago where I think I started re-watching the entire of ER from the beginning. I've made it 15 series through, so that was a sort of Brexit experience. Last year was Parks and Recreation. I sat down to watch one episode, and then the next thing that I know, I am deep, deep into it. It Uh, is so good. It's very... It's so good. Honestly, I'm I'm planning on rewatching it again sometime Mm. quite soon. Uh, Actually, I haven't even finished it. I've been saving, like, the final series for so long just because I don't want it to end. You talked about The Good Place. I watched the end of The Good Place last week, and, yeah, it destroyed me, and I don't think I can bear for Parks and Rec. I know it's finished already, but I don't think I can bear for it. It's sort of the dragon to burn Pawnee. (laughs) The show really... This is not the time for crossover. <laughs> there just wasn't enough work to show why she would do that. That was the problem. Ian, what about you? Where's your happy place? Uh, there is a new um, issue for the final arc of a comic called Sex Criminals by uh, Matt Fraction, which is a quite remarkable comic. And it's about a man and a woman who, uh, when they orgasm, time freezes. And they I'm use this with power. It. It's, it's very good. Chip Sadowski is the artist. And they use this power to rob a bank before they get caught by the sex police. Now, it is... I mean, okay, I'm aware that what I just said sounds 
fucking insane. It's a very difficult book to read on the bus, this, Ian. Yeah, no, it is. Very difficult to read on the bus. It's extremely read. It's a kind of... Yeah, don't let him give context. (laughs) (laughs) At its its worst, it's sort of like a woke carry-on film, but it's very rarely (laughs) at its worst. It's mostly at its best. And at its best, what it does is it tries to talk about sex honestly in a way that isn't titillating and it's not pornified, but it's also not judgmental or reactionary. It's genuinely open and sort of liberal and very, very gentle and kind. And if you if you don't read comics, you, you can just grab Sex Criminals 1. Don't read it on the fucking bus, whatever you do. Mm. But but give it a go. It is something that, that I can't think of anything in books or TV or music that has the honesty to grapple with that subject the way that that comic does. It's a very, very good comic. Don't read it on the bus. Mine is the um, a, a set of novels by Jeff Vandermeer called the Southern Reach Trilogy, and these were adapted into the film Annihilation. Oh, yeah, on yeah, Netflix. yeah, yeah. Basically, what happens is a, a, a completely inexplicable geographical anomaly appears somewhere in possibly America, and it begins to warp human beings. It begins to warp animals and fauna. It starts to warp time, and it starts to warp reality, and you have no idea what is going on. You're just kind of lost in this world of nature sort of taking over and doing its own unknowable thing and it's about the weirdness of of the natural world and it's a fantastic escape from politics because it's about it's so it's unhuman it's nothing hmm. happens that has got any connection with kind of human structures unfortunately volume two all takes place in the gigantic government agency with lots of meetings and powerpoint but even that starts to be corrupted and warped by this whole thing and i just love the otherworldliness of it the first one's called annihilation it's fantastically worth reading and that is the end of this week's bunker Thanks to our panel, Ian Dunt, Kath Haddon, and Dmitry Gozabinsky. You can hear Kath on the rather good Inside Briefing mm-hmm. podcast in the Institute of Government. Thank you for coming in, Kath. Mm-hmm. And you can follow Dimitri on Twitter at Dimitri Apines, where trade is explained with the aid of gifts from the Empire Strikes Back and Real Housewives. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks for coming in. You really did use a Real Housewives one. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> really? Yeah, I just searched like <laughs> laughter. <laughs> I'm bad at pop culture. <laughs> it was it was a perfectly good choice. And of course you may know Ian Dunn from such podcasts as Romaniacs. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to the Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. And we're now on Facebook too, so uh, join us there. We'll be back next week. See you then. Bye. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Kath Haddon, Ian Dunt, and Dmitry Grzybinski. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Popmasters production. <laughs>